Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerd Out Recaps, His Dark Materials with Peter Segal. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. And we are here with Peter Segal. Yes. You often ask me to say something witty. Yeah. What'd you come up with today? I, I got a yawn. I figured, <laughs> as, as you will find out, I, I didn't think much of this, and maybe I need to aggressively uh, lean into that and just Yeah, yawn, that's what I always did sigh. with Thrones. Exactly. So why not? You know, that's funny, because that there is a moment where I just wrote, is this boring? So, yeah. Episode three, The Whinging Begins. Yeah. yeah episode know. three, season one of His Dark Materials. It was called The Spies. I think it also could have been called Boats and Trust Issues. Because <laughs> that seemed to be the main premise. That, that would be a great title for a memoir of a <laughs> young woman who grew up. A seafaring in, gal. Exactly. <laughs> I did really love that opening scene, though. I thought that was pretty amazing. Which yeah. opening scene? Do we have? It was like in, she, Lyra's like in the back of the yes. truck under the net. She's terrified. She's fighting as much as she can. The truck stops. The doors open. Yeah, there's a particular way of shooting an action scene. The, the most vivid example I remember is the plane crash in Castaway. Oh, wow. Which is shot entirely from the perspective of the central character and emphasizes how incredibly confusing and disorienting yes. the experience was. So the shot back constantly to Lyra looking out from her weird bag that she was yeah, in yeah. and seeing what was happening outside and not knowing what was going on. That was, in fact, very cool. So yeah. let's agree that that was good. And then when those doors open and it's and it's Tony Costa it's and the he's like, Lyra, and yeah. she's like, Tony Costa? And she's like hunched under this net looking out. I just thought that was That's very good. Awesome. Yeah, that was a good start. It was Yeah, it was a good, it was a solid <laughs> first a solid, what, 90 seconds uh, or whatever that was. My hope rose <laughs> for a moment. Uh, uh. So from there, we have our opening sequence and then we go to Oxford. Yes. Where Mrs. Coulter is extremely angry. She is mad. And we see for the first time, it is the first time, right, that we see like the, the God Cops. Yes, the, like the, the magisteriums, kind of like. Do you, I was are, going to ask you, do they have a name? The yeah, the, they're the god cops that come now. <laughs> really, the the magisterium, the oblation board, and the god cops. Yeah, the god I, cops. I don't think so. This fall on ABC, God Cops. God cop. Jean Claude Van Damme is god cop. God cop. Um, god cop. I, <laughs> I. This is where things started to go off the rails for me because you have this uh, sequence of like obviously. Mrs. Coulter in full flower as a villain, and she's just being villainous, and she's just being the worst because that's who we now know she is. And she has all these god cops, and they're ransack the place. Mm -hmm. And all they do is they're, like, tossing around books. They're like, oh, (laughs) let's wreck these piles of books. And I'm like, guys, whatever you're looking for, you're not going to find it because the guys are, like, opening up a book, and they're not even reading it. They're just tossing it aside. I'm like, this is not an effective search. (laughs) I mean, this is is where my head was. I was like, guys, if you're looking for evidence, clearly you're not going to find it. Well, and then the whole, like, scholastic sanctuary oh, thing please. again. Uh, like, okay, again. It's getting a little heavy-handed Trish, with you the are, scholastic you are sanctuary. more interested in scholastic sanctuary than us. Were you at all interested in the violation thereof? I mean, I did think it was interesting that the only evidence they seemed to find, even though all they were doing was tossing books in the air, were the alethiometer sort of decoder ring books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Which they that found. allowed for some exposition about... 
Wait, how does this thing work? There was a lot of exposition in this episode. There was too much exposition in this episode. But we do know, I guess the point of that scene also beyond the exposition around how the alethiometer works is now Mrs. Coulter knows that Lyra has the alethiometer. Right. Right. Though it seems that nobody yet realizes that Lyra might be able to read it without the decoder ring books. Right. Which would have been more interesting if we had known that was a problem to begin with. Yes. Like if, if it had been set up early on that, oh, in order to make yeah. this complicated device work, you need this huge... Where he's like, I wish I could also give you these huge books, but yes. you have a lot to carry anyway, yeah. so, so good luck. Yeah, so if we had known that she had this incredibly valuable device that was only valuable if you had the key to it or keys, maybe that would have been more interesting than it has been when she just basically has this little thing. That, that she yells at sometimes. Yes. Yeah. 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 You know what this world needs that it doesn't seem to have? Oh, what? what? Is the bit of magic that allows Hermione Granger to have what looks like a very small bag, but means that she can carry uh, large books all the time. Is that yeah. not the bag of holding, or is that a Dungeons and Dragons thing? Ooh, I think it's a Dungeons and Dragons I, yeah, thing. I don't it's not think a that's Park. a D and D thing. I think Thank Hermione you. just puts a charm on a bag. Yeah, I yeah. mean it's a TARDIS charm, right? Yeah, sure. basically. Yeah, bigger on the inside. Bigger on the inside. Yeah, anything that's bigger on the inside. Then she could yeah. have taken the books. TARDIS it. Oh, all right. Well, she doesn't need them anyway, so it's all good. I did think Clark Peters as the Master of Jordan did a good sort of throwing shade back at Mrs. Coulter when she was like, where is she? And he's like, listen, lady, I kept her safe for 12 years. You had her for a week. (laughs) Don't look at me. I didn't lose her either for 12 years. I also, there's this great moment where he does this like big eye roll shrug at her when she throws some of his papers in the fire where he's just like, seriously, bitch? (laughs) Rips two pages out of a book. Here, how do you like that? I shall throw your pages. (laughs) And she's like, that was a 1934 farmer's almanac. Like, I could care. I like that Peter's Mrs. Coulter sounds like Robin Williams' Mrs. Doubtfire. (laughs) Seems right. It seems right. Speaking of cultural, I don't know if any other people out there other than myself keep looking at Clark Peters and miss his little half-rim glasses from The Wire. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Okay, so our next scene, we have Lyra still in that ridiculous fancy blue dress that looks so awkward on her. I think it's kind of exquisite how symbolic that that. dress is. Uh, And she's on a boat and she's going back to hang out with the Egyptians. Uh, And there's more... Annoying explication from some people. <laughs> Lyra is given a really great sweater, which I thought was worth noting since I observed the excellence of the last sweater. Yeah, the sweater game <laughs> is strong in his dark materials. Yes. I'm just pointing out we're like 10 minutes into this and we're already like grasping at sweaters <laughs> to look for something to praise. Well, the woolen garments are excellent. I do. As someone who is currently trying to knit her first sweater, <laughs> oh, well, I'm spending right a lot of time focusing I did not myself on notice the sweater. The sweater. Yeah. <laughs> well, and we find out that the Egyptians have known Lyra since she was a baby. She's yes. like getting a bigger and bigger sense oh, of sort of like find out a lot. her role in a bigger world, kind right. of. Right. Again, it's that sort of Harry Potter-ish thing where... She is frustrated to not understand why she is a bit famous. Yeah. Yeah. Are they pulling that off, though? Well, that is a good question. I don't know. It feels like she's not. She's either not famous. Like, it's this weird gray area where, like, everyone is too eager to help her. But I still feel like there's not enough of a reasoning behind it for people. Right. There's this thing that I think about a lot in regard to both kid lit and and sort of fiction in general, which is... um, In Harry Potter, which is a great example of the problem and how it's solved, you have a character who 
is special for reasons that he has nothing to do with. He was born that way, quite right. literally. Or in yeah. Harry Potter's case, he became that way shortly after birth right. when he became the boy who lived. And that's always a problem uh, when you have a hero or heroine who is special, but not because of anything they did or anything they're capable of. They right. just are. Right. And that can get really boring. It can be like, oh, you're the special one, and, and we're supposed to appreciate that, but mm-hmm. he, he or she hasn't done anything. J.K. Rowling did a great job of working your way around that because Harry Potter is constantly told, you're the special one. Yeah. You're the special one. And he doesn't feel special. He doesn't understand why he's special. He knows that he doesn't have any of these powers that people attribute to him. He's just as confused and lost as everyone else. Mm -hmm. And thus, in a weird way, Harry Potter becomes a stand-in for like every kid ever who's told, you're so amazing, you're so great. Maybe not every kid, sadly, but many kids. And they're like, I don't feel amazing or great, and I feel I'm going to disappoint everybody. And so it becomes a dramatic story for Harry, and that's why Harry's story is compelling. Lyra, maybe not so much. Yeah. She, yeah. It, it's, it's like everybody treats Lyra like she's really special and important. I mean, I, I do think it's a little trickier in this instance because it's it's not about something she's already done. It's about prophecy of what she's supposed exactly. to do, and that's, which makes it extra complicated yeah. because then there, you know, and especially if you don't know what the story is unfolds and it's just sort of like, well, let's actually listen because this leads right into the scene where. Lyra tells Ma Costa that she doesn't know how to cook and they have that cute scene in the kitchen. Yeah. And I think that kind of speaks to this and is also very heavy handed. So I'm sure Trisha will have opinions. <laughs> there you go, girl. Why are you stuck indoors? We'll learn you some of our tricks. <laughs> there, lesson one learned already. You'll be Egyptian woman yet. Is that what I'm going to be? Egyptian woman? You'll be whatever you want to be. Be your path. That's your choice. And yours alone. I found it especially interesting given last week with Lyra's whole, but Mrs. Coulter thinks I'm extraordinary. And Trisha, I know you were annoyed by that scene. And so I, th- I was curious what you thought of this one. I think this one is more charming, more loving. I think the actress who's playing Ma Costa did a lot with what she was given this week. Thank goodness for her in many ways. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, I think somebody being told they're extraordinary, I think there's like, don't quote me on the science people who are listening, but there's something about like the development of the brain where normally there's like an age where people stop sort of being uh, charmed by just sort of generic effusive praise and they actually want real feedback Huh. Or like more detail. I've, I've never reached that age myself. <laughs> yes, it's in, it's it's different for each of us. We know. Perhaps when I turn sixty, we could only go. But I think you can recognize that, like, there's some kids who you know they'll like a toddler will bring you a picture they drew, and you can say it's the greatest thing you've ever seen, and they walk away smiling. And by the time they reach a certain age, like they can tell the difference between mm-hmm. when something is good or accurate or whatever, and when they're just being sort Shined of patted on, on the head. Yeah. yeah. And Mrs. Coulter was sort of patting Lyra on the head, whereas Ma Costa was, I think, giving her a way to be a part of something, you know, and sort of creating a, a bit of a sense of community. And so those two scenes felt very different to me because one was her actually sort of learning a skill, as silly as it might be, but learning a trick and then doing it right and then getting some praise for it versus just sort of the generic effusive, you are extraordinary that 
like, I don't know, I was pretty early on immune to, I think. I think it also plays into the whole idea of the prophecy, right? And essentially what Mrs. Coulter is saying is, you're extraordinary because I know how, you know, the role that you will have to play in what is to come. Right. And I think Ma Costa, in a lot of ways, is actually saying, fuck the prophecy. You can do whatever you want. Uh, Forgive me for not picking this up, but what prophecy? Well, so they hint at it a little bit in the first episode, right? When the master of Jordan is talking to the librarian. Right. And they and they don't say much. They just say essentially that she's involved in a betrayal or something. Trisha, do you remember exactly? I'm worried I'm going to give something away if I misremember. Yeah, that she has something important to do that it involves a betrayal and not that she will be betrayed, but she will be the betrayer. Yes. Is what I remember. Yeah. Right. And it- and yeah, it's a it's a big prophecy. Right. And th- but we all, don't know much about it yet. All of these elements which we've seen in many, many other kinds of fiction. There's sure. Harry Potter, the chosen one, there's a prophecy about Harry Potter. The Matrix, Neo sure. is the one about whom there's a prophecy. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and and they all it's like such a standard trope of all kinds of storytelling. You are the one, you are the special one, you are the one who is foreseen, you have this amazing destiny. And that's fun. And interesting, but it immediately presents a problem, which is that we, the audience, are constantly being told that this person, Neo, Harry, whomever, Lyra, are special and important. But eventually you're like, do something special. Be important. Learn something. Show me something. Yeah. As I've said in Harry Potter, there's that because you're sort of put inside like poor Harry's head. It's like, I don't know how to do this. (laughs) It's, It's compelling on a sort of human level. In The Matrix, there's so much cool stuff going on, you don't even notice that all Keanu Reeves says for the first half of the movie is, whoa. <laughs> but here, I'm like, I'm like, all right, Lyra, do something. So I- does her reading the alethiometer help make that case for you? No, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> because why is she able to read the alethiometer? Because she has a special, amazing ability. Uh-huh. And contrast that with Harry Potter again. Uh, Harry has to like complete all these quests and do all these difficult things but he never does them because of some innate magical ability eventually you get like oh he can speak parcel tongue so he has certain advantages yeah but he always has to gut it out and he guts it out as a normal kid who uses his own inherent abilities of bravery and well, intelligence. Well, I mean, he uses his Hermione. like kid magic <laughs> to put Dudley in the we snake. We all know should be the hero. But but you, what, you, you like like let me put it this way. There there's there's unless I'm wrong and you guys know better than I do. There's no moment in say the first Harry Potter book where a door magically opens in front of him because he is the chosen one. Right. I mean, uh, it's like, always he had to figure. Oh, oh, it's a chess a bunch game, Ron. Privilege. We can get through this if we win the chess game, Ron. You're good at chess. Here, solve this problem. It, it, what I mean to say is, it's always like an active, interesting character thing that he has to do. It's never because he's special. I I hear what you're saying, but I do think, like, especially Harry, just like magically inheriting all that money, like the fact that money is never an issue for him, and like is part of the tension between him and Ron. I think is, I mean, not to make this a Harry Nerd Potter recaps Harry Potter with Peter Segel podcast, which would be fun. It would be fun. But, We're you know, all kind of I mean, like, for that right Harry now. for sure has his own privileges right. that do make things much easier True. for him than if things, you know. And you could get into analysis of that. And we can talk about that, as you say, all day. But the point is, is that when Lyra in this show all of a sudden can read the alethiometer, it's not that she figured something out, even though I noted that they said, oh, this symbol means that and this symbol means this. It's just, oh, my gosh, she has this amazing magical ability to do it. Yeah. And I know that's from the book. 
Mm-hmm. But for some reason, and this is one of the reasons I'm frustrated with this show three episodes in, is I remember reading the book many years ago and being so thrilled, as I said before, that Lyra is this amazingly active, interesting, independent protagonist who yeah. was such a revelation after reading so many passive girls and you know what I mean. Yeah. And I'm just not seeing that in this TV show, despite the fact that, as I've said, I think Daphne Keene is doing great with what she's given. Chronologically, our next scene that we're working with is Boreal showing up in what I guess we'll just call our world. Yes. As a matter of fact, I noticed at the end of the credits, oh, I, didn't, good. I, I stopped and I had to, I, what, what is that? It says our world director. Oh, perfect. Okay. And so presumably they call it our great. world. Our world. Love that. Um, Boreal's got a boot on his car. I didn't notice that. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of love that because I think I I had that thought the first time he crossed worlds where I was like, oh, what about street sweeping days? <laughs> <laughs> and I genuinely thought that because it's the least magical thing that can happen. And so it's kind of funny to get a boot on your car. Yeah, I thought there was some charm to that. Yeah. You know, do I you mean, guys, it was quick. Do you guys, I mean, the guy who's playing Boreal is great. He's got like oh, this amazing so look. Creepy. He really holds the screen whenever he's on camera. But do you guys care or know what he's up to? Let's listen to a clip. We have a clip of this is when he is talking to that dude who's like his fixer in our world, I guess, or whatever. Who has an amazing place to live. Yeah, that was pretty sweet. So, yeah, let's listen to that and then we'll we'll discuss. Why did you never try to follow me? You could have. You know enough to have crossed behind me. You don't have the courage that's needed. You don't want to find a window because you're scared of it. It's true. I was scared too, but I mastered my fear. I never thought that I was the only person to cross. But until Stanislaus, I never came across anyone who was fearless enough to have done it. I want to know what he knows. I want to know where he crosses, and I want to know what he has seen. I will say this is a scene where I wrote, is this boring? Yes, it's boring. And you know why it's boring? Because <laughs> why, that conversation why? isn't a isn't nobody dialogue. Cares. It's analysis. Yeah. Oh, you, nobody yeah. actually. You are you are afraid. You don't have the courage. You are correct. I do not have the courage. <laughs> That's what we're supposed to say. We're talking about the show. We're saying we see the thing is is a boreal is brave, and so, but nobody talks like that. Nobody nobody sort of what's the word lays out the issues in such abstract terms. For example, what's he afraid of? If you told me. <laughs> that there was a doorway into another dimension. You're po- pointing to Studio Nine, which is where this is American Life yes, to be recorded. That's that where it if is. I could like that actually is another I'm pointing world. at Candace. Hello, yeah. Candace. Candace doesn't notice I'm pointing <laughs> at her. Um, if if I could go like I could go through this door and be and talk to Candace about whatever Candace <laughs> is doing. Why I would certainly go there. No, my point is is like all right, maybe it's scary, maybe it's not, but. You can't we just don't say, know what's to be afraid of. You can't of. just say, you, you won't go because you're afraid, and the guy says, you're right. You, you talk about, like, well, well, what happens? What if I can't breathe? What if there are monsters? If this guy came to my world and talked about this strange cyberpunk world that's just like ours, except people have spirit demons, and there's, like, alethiometers and all this other bizarre quasi-magic, I would want to go. <laughs> I mean, in fact, you could argue the whole reason we're well, obsessively watching yeah. these TV series and talking about them is because we'd like to go there, at least visit. So, I mean, I don't want to make a big deal about like, oh, I would go, I would not go. I'm just saying that that scene was bullshit. Yeah. The dialogue was bullshit. I think they they could pretty easily 
show us that there are some stakes for moving between worlds, like that it took some sort of physical toll on him or, you know, was, if not scary, actually physically sort of taxing in some way, you know, and that could be done pretty simply. And then you would understand a little better what the fear was about, because it seems like it might, you know, sort of, you know, age you in a weird way or, you know, kind of squash your insides like you're being teleported or, you know, all kinds of things could happen. Um, even traveling in the TARDIS, it's like it's not all fun in games. Terrible on the joints. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think part of the problem, too, with this scene is that while it's really cool to picture the potential with the crossover stuff between Lyra's Oxford and our world yeah. is like for people who haven't read these books, who the fuck is Grumman? Yeah. And why does it matter that he has a wife and child and who cares that he might have died in Alaska? Right. Like all of that time spent talking about this person who we haven't met for whom they're like, what are the stakes of that? Right. Exactly. And I thought about that a lot, especially I can't remember if we brought this up in the first or second episode of this podcast, but I compare it again to Game of Thrones, where even though the world is totally alien and the history is alien and you don't understand who these people are, there's an almost an immediate understanding of what the basic personal stakes are. So for, to take another example, Jon Snow is a bastard. Uh, his mother ostensibly hates him because she is not his mother. He has no place in this family. He's got to find some other place to go. Mm-hmm. And you can understand that as a character thing without needing to know who the Starks are, who his mother was, where he came. It's like, oh, yeah, that's a problem that's I can relate a to. Thing. Yeah. It's a thing. And in this world, it seems, or in this show, it seems that every problem that every character has is tied up in some mysterious thing that we don't understand yet. Lyra's problems are all about her destiny and her parentage, which, by the way, we need to get to. Yeah. Um, Lord Boreal is out there searching for something, but we don't know what it is and we don't know why he wants it, even though he just said why. It still doesn't make any sense. There's, there's With the signal and maybe overused exception of the Egyptians wanting their kids back, yeah, that's a pretty That's a pretty, pretty I mean that's one. a huge exception what I'm talking about. Nobody in this show is acting in ways that we can immediately relate to. Exposition or no. Yeah. But we did get to see a picture on the screen of Andrew Scott, aka Hot Priest from Fleabag. We did? I didn't notice. Oh yeah. Who was that? Cuz that's the dude that That's the dude they're Boyle's looking for, looking for. who we're not going to see dude? until season oh. 2. I didn't recognize him. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I, you'd think that between Sherlock and, and uh, Fleabag, I'd, I'd see him when I saw him. But the no. hot priest. The hot priest. And also, also Moriarty, Moriarty in BBC Sherlock. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, we knew he was cast. We were excited that he was cast. And then his face popped up on the screen when they were doing the dossier. Is that, so that's Will Perry's well, dad. Well, that's great. Right? Uh, John Perry, John yes. Perry, yeah. Yep. Yeah, also known as Stanislaus Grumman, right. which and is partly why it's so confusing. I know, it's, like, it's very confusing. I also like that there's an assumption that the only way it's possible for a person to be photographed with a bird is if it's a demon. That was a <laughs> like a logical problem in his yeah. argument, which was like, but he must be from our world because there is a bird in this picture. And it's like, well, he could have just had a, had a bird with him. <laughs> well, and that's another one, <laughs> too, where it's like... Demon. Every opportunity we have to explain the purpose of a demon and what, you know, like now that we're in episode three, I think there were a couple, you know, there was that moment with Lyra talking about how like maybe she didn't want Pantalaimon to change also. That's like, do we need this? Like, don't we understand enough like what the purpose of a demon is? I I read another recap that said, oh, it's very nice. We learned a lot about demons. And I'm like, did we really? Didn't uh, Trish return to you as as our as our sort of demon virgin, if you'd excuse the expression. (laughs) Did you need that? Did you need if to? If I had a nickel for every time I'd been called demon virgin. <laughs> <laughs> 
We're going to go with Demon Novice. Demon Novice, sorry. Demon Rookie? Demon Rookie, yeah, Demon there Rookie. you go. Did you feel that that conversation <laughs> with Lord Bear Mormont, Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, always and forever, did you think that was necessary? Further quorum. Yeah, because if I actually hadn't been talking with you guys about what demons are, the show very briefly in the Demon Bar Mitzvah with Tony Costa <laughs> shows the bird settle into a bird. And I think right. they kind okay. of fleetingly mention it. Yeah. But again, if it's if you're really not reading the books, if you're really not listening to recaps, if you're, you're not Googling things, I think that that scene was helpful. Okay. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, so from there we go to they're interrogating the gobbler on the boat. Yes. And then all of a sudden the magisterium shows up because... More god cops. Because Boreal has heard that uh, Lyra could be with the Egyptians. Right. And so... Um, and I did wonder, like... That scene in specific, specifically, Trisha, you know, we had talked last week about like the questionable power of the magisterium and like whether this show has been effectively portraying the fact that this is like a group of people that can't really be messed with. Did that scene kind of help create, establish that for you? Or is it still ambiguous and vaguely annoying. I mean, I think it's becoming more and more clear the level of control they have in the world and the God cops definitely help Yeah, uh, sort of get that idea clear, make that idea clear. But I also think that it's interesting to think about not to get like too far in a different direction, but a lower economic status ethnic group potentially or not ethnic group, but sort of... Um, you know, community yeah. being uh, harassed by police is not something that seems that out of the ordinary, yep. unfortunately. And so the idea that Macasta is during the raid, you know, kind of going up to the cops and going, how about you look for my missing kid, huh? What about my missing kid? Oh, you don't care about that at all. It was really interesting to see both how little the cops cared, of course, but then also how brazenly she sort of did that, like literally shoving the picture of him in their mm-hmm. face to kind of say like, you have power here, but you don't have respect here all at once. Yeah. Uh, our next scene is Mrs. Coulter thinking about jumping off of the roof of her home. I find that's which I don't remember from the books at all. Mm-mm. I find weirdly compelling. <laughs> and, and, and is she drunk? She apparently is a little bit drunk. She's got some liquor, right, of some kind, wine or something. And, 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 you know, she, there was a line that uh, another recapper referenced where, you know, she makes you know, for one of her first meetings with Lyra. She says, oh, I, I stay away from edges because I'm afraid of throwing myself off. Yeah, them. I'm scared of heights. Scared of heights. Yeah, and and so, so clearly there's this aspect of her that she's self-hating. She's depressive. She flirts with suicide, which is sort of weirdly psychological in a contemporary way. It's weird to see that kind of aspect of a character in this kind of story, and I kind of like it. And her monkey looks very worried. There were a lot of weird scenes with her monkey reacting to things in this episode that I was annoyed by. And actually, kind of related to what you were just asking me, Greta, I would say that, and this is maybe hop-skipping a little bit in the episode, but the thing that showed me that the Magisterium is very damaging, more so maybe even than the God Cops... God cops uh-huh. to to God to cop. <laughs> yes. Was that story that Ma Costa told about how incredibly damaged both Azrael and Mrs. Coulter were yes. by the fact that they just happened to have a baby out of wedlock. Which is the next scene. But first, let's listen to a voicemail about Mrs. Coulter and then we'll get to that one. 
Hey, Nerdette. This is Jonah from Chicago. I was really amused by Mrs. Coulter's mental progression of, should I jump off this cliff? Maybe I'll walk on it a little recklessly. Uh, maybe I'll drink a little more. Uh, okay. I know it'd be funny. I'll release the illegal spy flies. So this is Jonah, who is three for three on voicemails on uh, Nerdette Recaps His Dark Materials. Wow. He might be the only person listening, but he's participating. <laughs> Jonah, and we we're here for that. you, man. <laughs> Well, I mean, they say in radio, you should always be thinking of one person when you're yeah, speaking Jonah. in the microphone. Yeah, it's Jonah. We're, speaking, we're thinking of Jonah. <laughs> now we know who it is. Uh, that All right, so we want to get to the revelation. Yeah, let's, so, <laughs> Trisha, can I call you out on this the this revelation? Sure. Three days ago, maybe, Trisha texted me and she was like, so I accidentally Googled a spoiler. <laughs> Trisha, like, oh, Trisha. Yeah. What'd you find out, buddy? Just a little, just a little mini one. <laughs> How much of a spoiler was it? Because we actually discussed, we, we sort of touched on yeah. Lyra's parentage. Well, Trisha kind of called it last week. Well, I was—I remember when we came up and I, I didn't want to say, well, Trisha, obviously she's her mother, right? And, but I didn't want to spoil it for you, not realizing you'd spoil it for yourself. <laughs> Accidentally. But so, okay, so, so now you've ruined it, Trisha. You've ruined it by Googling because I was going to ask you how surprised were you to find this what was to me not a revelation. I mean, even if you didn't know this from reading the books, it seems so obvious even in the moment where Mrs. Coulter shouted, and he's a terrible father. Right, which is exactly oh, yeah. the line that I called out last week as why, who says that but for someone's mother. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> who is also like m- much worse of a mother than Asriel ever was. Like, oh, at least she knew who Asriel was and he'd, like, come check up on her and yeah, stuff. And like, she is... was completely absent. Right. Mrs. Coulter only shows up to torment her and use her for her bizarre experiments, the nature of which we don't know yet, or it seems. Yeah. Let's listen to this scene and discuss further. Why am I so important to her? How am I supposed to trust you when no one tells me the truth? The truth is complicated. Some things you're better off not knowing. I am so bored of being told that! She's your mother, Lyra. That's what no one is telling you. She's your mom. No. No. Lyra. She's your ma. I'm realizing that one of the things that makes Lyra so strange now by episode three is that a kid's book or kid's lit hero who actually has parents is very rare. That's true, mm. but uh, missing parents are often the case. Like, Yeah, I mean, absent growing parents. up without them, I think, is super standard, common. Standard. And I think there is something interesting about having horrible parents. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's often you the know? case. Like, she's kind of a Dursley, Mrs. Coulter. Yeah, but... Here's the thing. First of all, I don't understand why they chose to do that revelation in that way, in a huge expository scene between Lyra and a character. Why didn't they structure that so that Mrs. Coulter is the one to tell her? I should have double-checked this, but I am like 95% certain it is Ma Costa who tells Lyra about all of her parentage in the book because she was, in fact, there. Right. Yeah, and I so totally forgot that. the person whole sort of to t- and it is like a long, you know, it's like unpacking the whole story. Yeah. I think it would have actually made more sense with both parents at once 
because I mean, that's the reveal, right? It's right. like Ma Costa knows because she was involved in this story. And right. so then can say, hey, I knew you when you were a tiny baby. Listen to this crazy story. That is how you came to be. And that whole story of uh, the, 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 I guess, extramarital affair and the baby and Mr. Coulter getting mad and Lord Asriel killing Mr. Coulter. That's all canon from the book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's and Ma Costa tells her yeah. on the boat. I'm yeah. pretty sure. Yeah. So Trisha, can you unpack a little more what you meant about that being a greater indicator of kind of the power of the magisterium in this world? Yeah, I mean, I think that if a simple out of wedlock birthing of a baby is enough to ruin two people's lives pretty completely, it seems like. Yeah. And sort of tear Mrs. Coulter's psyche apart, and all these things that they're saying happened, then the sort of demand for purity and adherence and obedience and orthodoxy is much greater than we see. Like we're being told that that exists, but this is the first time we are like seeing somebody who's lived those repercussions. Because again, it's not Handmaid's Tale. It's not people wearing sort of full habit when they have to walk around. It's not women seemingly looking uh, oppressed overtly by how they're allowed to dress or move throughout the world. Mrs. Coulter you know, has a car yeah, and a like driver and moves around place. in a fancy apartment yeah, on her own and isn't under the thumb of any man that we can see and seems to actually have power over many of the men in a quasi quote unquote modern way. Yeah. But then we're hearing, oh no, if you have a baby out of wedlock, your life is ruined in this and world. And I think there was even a fleeting line where it says a, a, a husband is allowed to, you know, take vengeance upon a despoiler of his wife or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, something, Ma something Costa weird. says something chilling about how men are not good at dealing with shame. And that's why mm-hmm. she was, you know, maybe going to be killed as a baby. You re- you I mean, re- I, I will say the other thing about Mrs. Coulter having the autonomy that she does, I do think, and there's no reason to think this based on the TV show, but a lot of that is because she is participating in stuff with the magisterium. Right. You know, like she's buddies with Boreal. Right. She had so to like sort of give herself over to yeah, she's as an like agent. on that team, which yeah. I think is why she gets to do as much as she does. Yeah, but we don't have any even really visual cues as to how different she is from other women who live in London. Right. Right. No, we for sure don't. Yeah, you don't are there any other other than Ma Costa? There really aren't any other pr- female. I mean, you make an interesting point, Trish, which is that this is a theocracy, but we have no notion of how this theocracy actually controls people's lives in the way that every theocracy that has ever been <laughs> controls people's lives, be it sexual repression or whatever. I mean, you know, the, the, in a theocracy, your your daily activities are prescribed by religious laws, and we. That's why I was asking the last time, like, who, who's in charge here? I mean, is it the civil government? I mean, they just seem to be an authority, which is what they're called, I think, in the book, the authority. Uh, no, that's the, another word for God. I yes, think. God is the authority. God is the authority. And yet there's really no sense of, like, how it – what is it like to live under the magisterium other than, the, like, these weird interactions between them and the scholars of Jordan College. Yeah, there's tiny tidbits, but that's about it. Yeah. Let's listen to a voicemail from Pamela. And then we'll take a break. (laughs) Hey, nerd friends. It's Pam from Nebraska. Uh, Oh, and also, hi, Peter. Hello. (laughs) Just kidding, Peter. Big fan. (laughs) Didn't mean to throw shade. Um, Just trying to topple the patriarchy. You know how we do. (laughs) Um, My major question about tonight's show is, what's the deal with Snake Man both driving a Tesla and also having an Android phone? 
It's a massive inconsistency to me. You know he'd be at least rocking the iPhone 10, if not that new 11 Pro. Um, production needs to get it together on that front. But in all seriousness, um, very much enjoying the show. I'm a uh, non-book reader, TV watcher only, and I really love it. That's great. If I had a demon, it would be a deer. Ooh. Love the show, guys. Bye. Bye. Oh my God, Pam is my favorite. She's amazing. I didn't. I did not clock the Tesla. I didn't notice the Tesla either, but, but I, I did pick up on the Android. I do love the idea that like they approached Elon Musk and said, "Oh, there's a product placement deal for this new His Dark Materials." They want to have a character <laughs> who drives a Tesla, and Elon Musk says, "Well, who drives it?" And they're like the the principal villain, this and Elon Musk is like snake deal. <laughs> Yes. I love that you think that Elon Musk actually signs I off on it. Yeah, they called it's Elon. Hello, Elon. Appearance. Yeah, good old Elon. Anyway. People have joked that one of the funniest things about the new Apple Plus, whatever, the new Apple TV shows, oh, is yeah. that as opposed to almost every other show on oh, TV where they true. can't use iPhones and iPads because <laughs> Apple is really a stickler about that, they're just like waving iPhones around left and right oh, on the morning hilarious. show, that new Jennifer Hennon <laughs> show, Aniston oh show. Oh my gosh, I love it. Too many damn worthwhile. streaming services. Yeah, I, I can't know. even decide whether to sign up for Disney+. Plus. Oh, yeah, I'm for sure not going to do that. Yeah. I mean, but baby Yoda... Uh, not spoiled for me not by you by the internet (laughs) by the internet oh let's take a break we'll be right back (laughs) think on your feet for our fast and curious 5k a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday July 27th at Humboldt Park more info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org slash events Okay, let's go back to the Egyptian meeting, which they call a roping. Yes. Which I think is a little weird, but I guess they have their They have their language. We have a clip. She'll just keep on taking your children. Fighting back is the only way. The gobblers have taken their prisoners to the far north, to the land of the dark. So we are going after them. Any Egyptian still traveling here has been sent word to head straight for the port. We know where they are. The north is bust. We can discover that information. No, we do not know where. But we will go to Trollocent. And we will ask the witches for their support. What the witches say no? Too many questions. We know it will be dangerous. <laughs> also know we're strong. So yes. Now I am asking you to put yourself more at risk. For Lyra. For the children we have lost. But mostly for ourselves. The North is vast. The North is vast, but we'll go, we'll ask. Um, basically, <laughs> Lord, Lord Bear Mormont just called for a ranging to the North. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> An aquatic ranging. Yeah, the question were. is, how long is it going to take them to get to yeah, the Yeah, they have steamships. Like, so how bad is this yeah. trajectory? you got to put Varys on that boat, because then it's just a hop skip. Right. <sighs> but, so what do you think? I mean, you know, Peter, you're the one who said, like, the, the Egyptians and the whole gobbler, like, trying to find their children thing is, like, maybe the only, like, relatable character right. motivation we have so far in this story. And the thing about this scene, while it may have been a little obnoxious, is that it at least does like I propel. Oh, good! It propels the story forward, right? It does. It's like in a way. there's a plan. They're oh. going to go to the north. They're going to ask the witches for help. They're going to go from there. Right. Although, 
the scene was written in such a familiar, and I don't mean that in a good way, like, you know, one guy saying, we should go do this. And the other guy- The North is vast. The North is, and the other guy, and there's- What if they say no? What if they say no? It'll be too dangerous. We can't do this. And I always pity that. It's going to be cold. Yeah, somebody's got to stand up and make this (laughs) bullshit argument that we're not going to go do the obvious thing that we're going to do so that there can be some dramatic tension. I don't feel like it. Exactly. Thank you, Greta. You would be perfect in this role. You may have been born to play this role. Did you guys notice in the credits that Greta was off-screen Winger number three? Uh, I was like, no, I don't want to. Let's not. Our children stay here. All our children have been kidnapped. We should probably go find them. No. No. (laughs) Come on. My children. And then Lyra has to get get up, you know, and and say, well, but you have to do this. The only way to do it. And it's like, oh, thank you for saying the obvious, because our protagonist has now said the obvious thing. The poor son of a bitch who had the uh, an enviable job of, of coming up with arguments against is now convinced yeah. of what he should have been convinced okay, of. Okay, fine. Be. Okay, fine. Yes. And then by the end, he's cheering. You know, yes, we should go. Oh, please. The witches. The witches. Oh, yes, there are witches. That'll be fun. I am excited about the witches. I'm a little nervous, though, honestly. I'm nervous about I everything. Want it, I, yeah, I just want them to do a good job with all of the things. Yeah, I mean... Th- th- I'm not nervous because I know what happens next week. Why oh, you watched the you thing? Watch the, just the, the thing. trailer. Yeah, the trailer. I what did, did you accidentally Google, Trisha? I didn't Google it. I've known from the beginning that Lin-Manuel Miranda shows up in episode four. Thank yes. you very yes. much. Next week. And apparently he's going to have a bar fight. And as much as I love Lin-Manuel Miranda, I've never wanted to see him have a bar fight, but I guess we're going to get yeah, that. that. Is interesting. I mean, he has yeah. seriously no chill whatsoever. So Lin-Manuel? Yeah. He's not a chill guy. Right. Among his many, many, many qualities, in case he's listening, I love you, Lin. <laughs> There's not, chill is not primary among them. Now I'm just picturing him listening to this, and it's very confusing. The, the, I know. No, it's not, it's not Lynn. It's, it's Jonah. Um, so one of the things I find myself, and this is a bad sign, and I think, Trish, you just indicated to it, like, oh, well, next week they're going to have these elements. They're going to have the armored bear, and they're going to be in the north, and maybe there'll be witches. Maybe that will be interesting. And that's never a good mindset to find yourself in when you're – you're watching a TV show. Maybe the next thing they do will actually hold my interest. The first three episodes of this, I think, are much more interesting in a vacuum than the first three episodes of Game of Thrones and the first three episodes of a lot of shows, I gotta say. Well, I'm glad yes. to hear you say that. A lot more has happened. There's world building and all kinds of stuff going on. Like, yes, it's taking them some time. Yes, there's some exposition. But I, of the three of us, I think I'm going to to sort of say I don't give this episode an A, but it is not getting a failing grade from me as it feels like it maybe it is from the two of you. Because, again, like so much of this world building stuff is just brand new. I still think the yeah. Egyptians are fascinating. I think they're the most interesting bunch for sure. Ma Costa is really great. Uh, John Fa, like all these characters, I think are really sort of fun and interesting. And, yes, a little bit of the writing is hammy and cheesy. But we're also like putting our band together to go on this quest, which is a hero's journey thing that we have to do. And so now that we have right. the team together, we can go north. Oh, I for sure would not give it a failing grade. This was just the first episode where I wasn't completely enthralled, which made me a little nervous. Um, But I mean, I think part of that also is just like if you look at the story arc over eight episodes, it makes sense that the third one would be a bit of a lull, right? Because it is sort of like getting all of the pieces in place for them to go north. Right. Like, I imagine it's just going to be building from here. Yeah, and I remember talking about certain episodes of Game of Thrones in the same way. Like, well, this isn't a particularly great episode, but they're setting up, Mm -hmm. like, whatever it may be, the trial, the battle that's going to be coming up. So I can see that. I think, listening to you, Trish, and and you, Greta, I think I'm in a a, a unique and maybe uniquely weird uh, and bad 
position to watch the show because I did read the books, but so long ago I don't remember them well. I just remember yeah. how I reacted to them, which I just adored them. And I'm watching the show and I'm not nearly feeling the same enthusiasm. And so I'm like feeling disoriented, like was it me? Have I changed? Did they screw up the t- the books? I have no idea. But all I can do is – it's. I've, you must have done this in your life, which has gone back to something you loved perhaps even as a child, certainly many years ago. Maybe a book, maybe a TV show, maybe a movie, maybe even like a restaurant or a, or, or a location, someplace you visited. Olive Garden is not the same as it once was to me. Exactly. And, and you remember how much you loved it and you get there and you're like, oh, wow, the food here isn't that great or this book is much more obvious than I thought or this acting is terrible or whatever it may be. And I, I have a feeling that I'm sort of – I wasn't. It wasn't. Didn't seem to me like that long ago that I read the books. But maybe I've I've changed. I don't know. But I do have this weird feeling of like being like disappointed, nostalgically. Mm, nostalgia. Yeah. That'll get you every time. It will. Uh, we should discuss Lyra actually figuring out how to read the alethiometer. Partly because I was just very relieved that they didn't do it as shittily as they did in the movies. Which was like, as you described, that weird kind of cosmic visions. Yeah, it was cosmic visions that were very annoying. And that in the movie is actually how she finds out about her parents. Really? She like asks the alethiometer and it tells her that whole story. And it's just like, this is stupid, you guys. So if I I remember correctly, somebody explains to her basically how you use the alethiometer. And it's farter quorum. Right. And says, well, you just set three dials to three symbols indicating a question and then the mm-hmm. fourth dial or fourth hand will spin and tell you the answer yes. right and she and yes. then but then he says well you can't do that unless you have the book explaining what the symbols mean uh-huh and then and she's she may, like fuck you dude i got this despite what i said earlier about how it's just this mystical ability that she has which i find disappointing she did try a long time right and further, they I could tell the writer, the producers said, OK, we're going to make this as conscious on her part as possible. So you hear her thinking, all right, I'm going to ask your I'm going to ask the lithiometer about this person. What qualities indicate this person? Well, and thank God she has pantalimon in that scene, I right, think, because that would be really awkward if she just had to do that on her own. Yeah, so she's saying to pantalimon, you know, like that is a device I think actually worked really yeah. well. She says, I'm going to I'm asking about this. So he's these qualities. So this symbol, this symbol, this symbol. And then it comes to this symbol. What does this symbol mean? Oh, and that yeah. was better than it could have been. Oh, it was much better. I also thought there were some kind of Game of Thrones opening credit vibes. Well, it was cool with the, to the, the way yeah, it, like was... I like that just felt much better to me than Cosmic Visions in terms of how they're going to portray right. this thing conveying information. You right. Know? Yeah. And by the way, uh, I, I was watching it and thinking somebody had to design this device. Somebody had to come up with all the symbols in the device. And I'm like, props to you. Art props director, person? design, props person, props to the props person. <laughs> it did feel a little more like she was reading tarot cards or something than I expected. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's actually, I've never thought of that, but that's perfect because, you know, there are so many layers of meaning to each one of those symbols. Yeah. That it's probably a lot like reading tarot cards in Uh-oh, terms sorry, of. Sorry, Peter, I got Greta started on tarot cards. <laughs> well, I didn't realize this was an enthusiasm of yours. Well, Greta. just in terms, I mean, I, I love anything that has like huge symbolic representation in a very specific like things like tarot cards, mm-hmm. right? You know, because that like any of those could mean any number of different things. And I think that's totally accurate for it, the alethiometer too, where part of it is just sort of how you read it. Yeah. But this still gives you very specific answers compared yeah. to tarot cards. Right. I've never had like And they're a true. It actually super works. Super specific tarot, tarot card reading. Actually, yeah, yeah. You know. Uh, let's listen to a voicemail about the alethiometer. Hey, Nerdette Recaps. It's my birthday, and I have a wondering, how does Lyra know what each of the symbols are? 
not even what they mean, but just what they are. She said that the one was a crucible, and it just looked like a bowl. And especially considering how many symbols there are, I just feel like that would be really tricky. Thanks. Love the show. Bye. Happy birthday, Kristen. You think Happy she's a birthday. little soused? She sounded a little soused. Well, wouldn't you be? I mean, yeah, I love the phrase, I have a wondering. I'm going to start That's using great. that. I have a wondering. It's real good. Yes. The crucible one especially was a little bit. Yeah, a crucible. Like, do people really know what a crucible is? Only people who did the play in high school. <laughs> Raising my Peter hand. Peter just raised his hand. Actually, I didn't do the play in high school, but I feel like I did. Um, <laughs> That's how most of us feel about high school, yeah. And crucible. It's actually hard to tell what the symbols actually are. They're, they're designed yeah, in some such of them a way. Are weird. They're unfamiliar, you yeah. know. It reminded me of like when uh, like the new Olympic City unveils their sport symbols to indicate, you know, their graphic array of what the how you're going to indicate the sport. You're like, what are those people fencing? Are they having sex? What are they doing? You know, (laughs) a little bit like that. But again, I prop and and part of Lyra's skill is apparently her ability to perceive accurately what those symbols are. Mm -hmm. Well, and let's Mm -hmm. hope that maybe either the librarian or the master of Jordan, you know, threw a book her way at some point that at least kind of gave her some idea what these symbols mean. And we see the symbols other places, right? Like we see symbols that are not readily understood by me, at least like in the magisterium scenes, sometimes in the background of some other things. So in terms of the production design, that didn't bother me as much. It kind of felt like this is a coded language, but of this world. Yeah, well, I think it's also just like being able to have the mindset to look at a specific symbol and look at a specific picture and think about all of the different things that something like an anchor could symbolize, right. which is a lot of different things. Right. Right. And, and so if you're able to sort of like capture the different layers of meaning of any given item, I think that's only going to help you. Right. Although I keep coming back to a question that I think Trish, you raised before is why in the world did the master give her the alethiometer? Is that ever explained? I mean, it was hers. A la the invisibility cloak. A little bit. Yeah, it's hers. Like, she showed up at Jordan with it. Oh. And that's why Fartercorm knows what it is, because he helped her when she was a baby. Right. Is that explicitly laid out, that there was an alethiometer tucked inside her diapers when she was... Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right, then I just missed it. Sorry. (laughs) It's okay. You missed that and the boot. Yeah, I missed it. And you missed Hot Priest. Yeah, although I remember... (laughs) It's funny, as I obviously remember looking at the picture as he pulled out the pictures from that little envelope, but I didn't realize it was Andrew Scott, because... Mm. I'm just not as attuned to the hot priest as you guys are. <laughs> okay, I have one more question, though, before we go. Yeah, yeah, of course. Which is, why are the spy flies so illegal and dangerous and scary? Dude. And also, what powers them? And yeah, how do they well, work? Well, and, like, how are they going to tell her anything? Yeah. Like, that also was, like, okay, so now you're holding this weird thing. Like, What, I mean, do you plug them in, like, Yeah, a, it's got a little your, USB. Into your laptop? But, yeah. yeah. I mean, what is it, and how does it communicate? I, I mean, it know. seemed to, yeah. like, a bloodhound be put on her dress so it could get her scent so that it could find her? Yes, that seemed to be what yeah, was Yeah, maybe going now on. it can just like... And now it can track her? Radar at her, yeah, GPS. Maybe it's a Lyra GPS now? I don't... Uh, it seems like the level of technology slash magic in this world is unclear, which doesn't bother me. I kind of like that these things can keep popping up. But why, I didn't understand exactly why they're so dangerous. I keep wanting things to be like horcruxes and stuff. I keep wanting to understand what's dark magic yeah. and wondering what's dark magic. And yeah. I thought, like, because even Boreal was like, oh, a spy fly, heavens to Betsy. And I was like, wait, if he thinks this is scary and, like, kind of outlandish, then, like, how, why is this so bad? Is it bad blood magic? What's going on? 
I thought that was a pretty cool scene when they showed up yes. and the demons kind of tried to catch them and they're like stomping around yeah, that was pretty on, cool. on the boat. Like stomp, I thought that stomp, was kind stomp, of awesome. Stomp, stomp. Although I have, will say that in a, in a world which for all its other flaws, which I talk about, has great naming, like the Magisterium, the mm-hmm. Oblation Board, mm-hmm. Spyfly? <laughs> That's Spy the fly. best they can come up Spy with? Spyfly? Spy it rhymes. It does. It's kind of cool. Uh, one thing we did not discuss is the Trump Tower break-in. Yes, which we probably should. It had an interesting... We found out what happens when a person dies, what happens to their demon. Yes. Yeah. Push. Yeah. Push. That was that was one of the other scenes where I was annoyed by the monkey. The monkey's like, what up? Where did it Yeah, I was like, he was like... He's like, like grabbing He was like for grabbing the little like, dust mites. Dust. Like mourning its... It's like, come on, that monkey has killed a lot of people. It it would have seen that before. Yeah. The weird thing about that is there is that strange moment in which the monkey is beating up. What's the name of the character who dies? Benjamin. The the monkey is beating up Benjamin's wounded demon, the bird. Uh Uh-huh. And Mrs. Coulter is on top of Benjamin and weirdly slapping at him in a way that just seemed, I don't know what it was. It seemed like it was supposed to hurt him. But it didn't seem anything that would actually hurt you. It was very strange. I mean, it kind of mimicked the yes. actions of the monkey. It, it mimicked the the monkey demon, but it just it just played weird to me. I mean, I know there yeah. was like supposedly a, like a moment of of mirroring, like the right. demon's doing this, Mrs. Coulter's doing this. Yeah, the, the same way thing. she straddled him. Too, yeah, but it just looked just co- really weird. weirdly comic yeah. in that moment. It was a very strange scene. Yeah. Was that the first gun we've seen? Also, uh, I think so. <sighs> I think so, yeah. It was a you know, big it old... It seems oddly out of place, doesn't it, in I that think, world? I think, if I'm not mistaken, Lin-Manuel's character, uh, Lee Scoresby, is kind of a cowboyish character who, who has a revolver. and so He's maybe from th- Texas. Yeah. So we might be seeing more of those enormous Civil War era revolvers coming back. And I guess, does that scene also indicate that Mrs. Coulter knows that the Egyptians know? They, they break into the apartment to try to find those documents that Lyra had seen. Right. And they get one. And Tony, Tony Costa yeah, gets one. He succeeds. So he comes back and he actually has it. Yeah. Do, did we see what was on that particular document? He gives it to Ma Costa and it's a list of kids and Billy's name is on there. Ah. Uh, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. But not the plans, not like the blueprints that Lyra saw. Right. And so we can assume that Mrs. Coulter knows that the Egyptians are on their way north, I guess. Yeah. But I don't know. That wasn't, that wasn't super clear. Yeah. I also like the... The one group of people we did not see from this episode was Roger and little Billy Costa. Yeah, all who those knows kids. Where they like are. we don't know. We know they were headed north, I guess, but that's right. all we know. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Trisha, do you have any parting notions? No, just that I'm excited for Lynn Manuel next week, and if he's listening, which he's not, <laughs> we are very excited for him to join the fray. Do you guys know the story of why he was so excited about this project? No. no. So he and his now wife, when they first started dating, they were reading the books together. Oh. And it's a part of their sort of love story and origin story as a couple that they both fell in love with these books and bonded over these books. So I just think that's, oh, that's very so sweet. sweet. It is very sweet. That is sweet. Yes. Let's listen to one more voicemail. Hello, Nudette San Peter. My name is Roy, and my personal demon is a moose, specifically Bullwinkle. <laughs> And I have not read the books before, and I was not familiar with the word oblation. And for anyone else out there who's not familiar with it, you should look it up. Uh, Opens up some horrifying possibilities for why the children are being gathered. So that's it. I just uh, wanted to point that out. Thank you. 
this is something we talked a little bit about last week, yeah. but I actually forgot what the definition was. I remember between uh, then it, and now because so. I remember saying, oh, "Wow, it sounds like a great word." Like, a, a and I said, "I googled it." And Trisha accidentally Googled a spoiler of what oblation means. Just no, I kidding. just Googled the definition of the word because that I didn't feel like cheating. Know. It's not cheating. And it means sacrifice, yeah. right? To sacrifice something. Yeah. Which is scary. Yes. And creepy. Our caller was correct. So we would love for you to be a part of this conversation. You can leave us a little voice memo by recording yourself and then emailing it to us at nerd at recaps at game of Whoa. Recaps <laughs> at gmail.com. Just say your name, where you're calling from, and what your demon would be. Again, that email address is nerdatrecaps at gmail.com. Did I really just say recaps at gameofthrones.com? At gameofthrones.biz.uk. That pizza. Yeah, I was gonna, we can't get the dot com. That's too tricky. The show is produced by us with help from Justin Bull. Our executive producer is Brendan Banizak, and our theme music was composed by the amazing Andrew Edwards of Blue Police Box Music. Oh, hey, by the way, you can get that theme song on oh, Spotify. Yes. You can get the theme song on Spotify, which is fucking awesome. We are at Nerd Up Podcast on Twitter. Trisha's Trisha Bobita. I am Greta M. Johnson. Peter is Peter Sagal. And you can also use the hashtag Nerd at Recaps. I think that's all I have to say. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.